This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. It's time for another unbiased, in-depth episode of The Drop Podcast. Our focus is on the St. Louis Blues, but we also delve into other topics from around the NHL. So when the ref hands out that game misconduct penalty, tell him you don't care because you wanted to listen to the latest episode of The Drop anyway. Here's your host, Lance DeScott. It's great to have everyone back for another episode of the Drop Podcast. This is a special Drop Podcast. In my mind, I've got one of the greatest goaltenders of all time, if not the greatest goaltenders of all time. When you think about great goaltenders, you think about Gump Wormsley, you think about Terry Sawchuk, you think about uh, Patrick Waugh, you you think about Martin Brodeur, you think about Curtis Joseph, you think about all these great goalies throughout the time. This man won six Stanley Cups, uh, sorry, five Stanley Cups, and was a six-time All-Star, won the Vesna Trophy, shared the Jennings Trophy in 1994, played for six teams in the NHL, put in almost 50,000 minutes in net. Welcome to the show, Grant Fuhr. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. No problem, Grant. Uh, I've got you here because uh, one of the main things is you've got a documentary coming up, and now you're a documentary star. Uh, it was just released. It was shown in Toronto the around the middle of the month, I believe September 11th last month, and the world premiere, premiere for Making Coco was uh, just last Saturday in Calgary. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but uh, let's start from the beginning at first. Uh, a lot of people would say that Grant Fuhr didn't have the best start. Um, he was born to two biological parents. He was put up for adoption, but it was actually that adoption that helped him become the man he was going to be. Betty Wheeler and Robert Fuhr adopted him and raised him in a little town called Spruce Grove, Alberta. If you've ever been there, it's a town of upper 30,000s, but when Grant was born in 1962, it was had around 500, 600 people, so it was a really, really small town. Grant, how did that small town atmosphere really build you into the young person you were and now the man that you are today? Well, I think the fun of growing up in a small town is everybody knows everybody. I mean, a lot of all the kids, we all played hockey, we all played baseball. So you spend a lot of time together and it builds for a lot of close friendships and that kind of fit the perfect mold for Edmonton. Sure, it does. Uh, I'd Like I've told you before when we talked last time, I've visited Edmonton a lot in a previous uh, job position I had. And the people up there are so friendly. Uh, People in Calgary are so friendly. Um, I've traveled all throughout Alberta, Fort McMurray, Grand Prairie, and everybody is so down to earth. In fact, I've told you this story before about how just stopping in somewhere at night to watch a game and have a, a beer, people invite me to go play hockey and these people don't know me. They offer to give me their equipment. They offer me to get to give me, you know, to, to give me a ride there. It's just a different atmosphere in that area. It is. It's a very friendly place. I mean, I feel lucky. I still have a lot of the same friends I had growing up and get a chance to see them when I'm back home. So I feel pretty fortunate to have a great group of friends. That's, that's great. Cause most of us, we grow up with people. We, we, we fall apart after a few years, you know, we build relationships and due to distance, they fall apart. But I can truly believe that you still have all those friends that you grew up with. And you played hockey, you said, you played baseball. Uh, Of course, your love of hockey was more than your love of baseball, apparently. 
yeah, I would say hockey was first and foremost. I mean, I enjoyed playing baseball and had a lot of fun with it, but hockey was always the first love, and it's something I still love. You uh, joined the Victoria Cougars of the WHL. You had two great seasons there in Victoria. The NHL draft was coming up. You had won the you had won the Memorial Cup in '81. Glenn Sather of the Oilers was not sold on you at first, was he? No, unfortunately, the couple of games that Glenn came out to see me, I was not very good. I think I lost one, eight, one. I might have lost the other one, similar eight, one, nine, one, something like that. So I wasn't very good when Glenn came to see me. So it made it for a tough decision for him. But he went ahead and drafted you. He trusted, uh, I guess, the rest of his scouts and what everybody else uh, said about you. And your career was on the way. In my mind, from 81 to 91, I don't think you could take a 10-year period in that time to when you could say any other team played like the Edmonton Oilers did. You won all those Stanley Cups, as I said, those five, 84, 85, 87, 88, 90, had some great teams and people had not really seen that type of open style, except maybe a little bit in Russia. You guys kind of had that same system, the quick puck movement. Nobody held the puck very long, and nobody on your team was stingy. Uh, you had Wayne Gretzky, the best player in my mind to ever play the game, and most people's minds to ever play the game. And he wasn't even stingy, even though you had all these people that wanted the puck, Messier, Coffee, all these other guys, and then later Esatikanen. Uh, everybody wanted the puck, but you guys played as a team. We did, and I think that was the great thing about our team is nobody was selfish. I mean, everybody knew they had a role to play and were happy playing that role. And for me, we played sort of a similar game in Victoria, so by the time I got to Edmonton, I'd seen a similar system to that, and it was a comfortable transition, but it was a fun place to play because we did play a lot of offense, and the fact that we played so much offense – meant that you were going to be fairly busy most nights and it was a lot more fun playing that way i've always said and i've told you before i played goalie as a kid and then up into an adult in beer leagues and the more shots you get the actual the better you feel if you're at a game where you're only getting 14 15 shots you can't get into a game you get a game with 30 40 shots you're more into that game you just get more comfortable with it i think the more work you get the more you're in tune with the game it's a hard game to play when you're getting 15, 20 shots, but at the same time, it's just a little bit more mental focus. But it's it's a lot more fun when you're getting 30, 35 shots. Yes, it is. And uh, there's a lot of good times for the Oilers, but there was a bad time when uh, your fellow teammate Steve Smith put the puck in his own net behind you in the 86 playoffs against the Alberta rivals, the Flames. And I know you guys rallied around him. What was that like for Steve and and I'm sure the team felt bad for him, but you guys, like I said, rallied around him. I think it's probably heartbreaking for him. I mean, we just coming off winning two in a row and probably had a chance to win a third in a row, but things happen in hockey. I mean, not all the bounces go your way. Not all good things happen. And it's just one of those unfortunate things that happens in the game of hockey. We still had lots of time where we could have gone out and won that game, but it just wasn't meant to be. So it's one of those things you just have to put it out of your mind. And we knew the next year going in that we still had a good hockey club and we just have to get our minds straight and go back to trying to win another cup sure there's so many times in a game you could say and i hear a lot of fans say this about the blues games and other games around the nhl well if they would have just done this that time you know if they wouldn't have allowed this goal if they would have cleared it then they would have won the game well 
you, you don't know that necessarily, but there's also opportunities on the other end, too. It goes both ways. It does. I mean, as much as you hate to say it, luck does play a part in the game. I mean, obviously, if you're playing good systems and you're working hard and such, you have to be good to get luck. So if you're playing properly, you get that luck. Sometimes the harder you work, the more you play, the better the luck is. It just kind of works out that way. Sure. And you were always the type of goalie to play a lot, even though you shared the net with Andy Moog and Bill Ranford later on. You always played a lot of games. And I can't believe this, Grant. When you played against the Russians in the 87 Rendezvous Series, not only did you play all nine games, Grant, you played 75 regular season games and 19 playoff games. That's almost 100 games. How did you do that? You would have had to have been in great physical shape. Uh, reasonable physical shape. I mean, I, I always <laughs> enjoyed playing. I think, actually, I think with exhibition and such, we did about 103 games that year. Whew. So it, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I'm one that's always figured that if you prepare mentally to play the game, you dress for it anyway, you might as well play. And it's something I enjoyed. It's something I thrived on. Sure. And when you enjoy something and you are good at what you do, you're going to have success like you did. Uh, moving on to a, a dark time in your life, and I won't spend a lot of time on this. I think it's been gone over a lot. Uh, you had some shoulder injuries and you battled some substance abuse. Basically, your ex-wife turned you in for that substance abuse. The NHL was very hard on you. You ended up getting a suspension of, I believe, around 59 games. And, you know, some people say that that's a smear on your career. I say, hey, you, you don't know what's going through a man's life until you walk in his shoes, number one. Number two, if it was in today's game, Grant, the NHL would have helped you. I'm sure they would have. It probably wouldn't have been as big of a deal. And uh, people are more understanding today, especially in the media, uh, in some places than they than they were years ago. It was just a t- different time. I mean, yeah, is it unfortunate it happened? It is. But at the same time, you make bad choices in life and you have to pay a price for it. So unfortunately, I'd made some bad choices and that was the price I had to pay for it. But at the same time, it makes you a better person to have gone through it. So a lot of what I went through back then is part of why I am the way I am now. Sure. It's always the good things in your life that mold you and the bad things in your life that normally end up making you stronger and mold you into the person that you are today. Uh, Your time in Edmonton was over, and I'm sure you could see the writing on the wall with everything going on there. You were traded to the Toronto Maple Leafs, and like a lot of people, a lot of players in the NHL that are raised in Canada, that's a dream for them to be able to play for the Maple Leafs. It was. I mean, as as a little kid, games we got on Saturday nights and Hockey Night in Canada were Maple Leaf games, so four, five, six, seven-year-old, you got to see Toronto play all the time. And obviously the dream as a kid is, why well, you want to be a Maple Leaf. You know, the Oilers came to the NHL, so I dreamed about being an Oiler. But at the same time, I wanted to be a Maple Leaf before that. So if I couldn't play in Edmonton, then playing in Toronto was the next best thing. Sure, you were there for a while, I guess about a year and a half. You were moved on to Buffalo. And Buffalo had not had much success you had played well in uh, a first-round playoff victory over the Bruins that year. You kind of mentored Dominic Hasek. Uh, did you know from being around Dominic Hasek at that time, I know there may have been a little bit of a language barrier, but did you know that he was going to be that type of goaltender? Oh, no, I knew Dom was good. I mean, I got a chance to see him in the Canada Cups. 
So you knew he was very talented. It was only a matter of time before he got a chance to show how talented he was. So hence the short stay in Buffalo, and you keep moving on. I mean, the fun part of my career is I always get to play with good, other good goalies. So it forces you to be better. Sure, it does. Competition behind you always forces you to do better, whether it's in a job or whatever you do. That competition drives you to do your best, and it's not that you don't like the other person. You you want success for them too, but you also want success for yourself. Um, you were then uh, dealt to the Kings. You got to play again with uh, your old buddy Wayne Gretzky. You weren't there very long, but what 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 was that like to play with Wayne again? It was fun to go to LA. I think there was probably six of us that had played in Edmonton at that time. Charlie Huddy was there, Patty Conacher, um, Mike Krushaniski was there, Marty was there. So we had a lot of guys that I'd played with before. So it was a comfortable place to go to try and reestablish that I could play the game. Sure. And a lot of people after that stint kind of put you to the side and said, oh, he's washed up. He's past his prime. You really weren't that old then. I mean, really, to look at it, I mean, goaltenders today, can they're playing until they're 37, 38 years old. Some of them can't play till they're older. But uh, you ended up signing with the Blues as a free agent. Uh, a lot of people in St. Louis were upset because uh, fan favorite Curtis Joseph left the team. And it wasn't an indictment against Curtis Joseph as to why Mike Keenan signed you. It was the fact that he knew you had playoff experience, that you still had something left in you. And I watched you have some of the best years in your career here in St. Louis. It's always fun walking into a situation where they've just traded the most popular player. <laughs> I mean, that's one of those unfortunate things, but I mean, Curtis and I were friends. And it's, I think he actually came to Edmonton at that time. Yeah, he so did. Yes. Kind of, we were, we were trading circles. But <laughs> no, it, it makes things a little bit more difficult when you go into a city for the first time. Mike and I really didn't get off on the right foot, but at the same time, he believed that I could play. And St. Louis was a perfect place for me to prove to people that I could play the game. Yeah, and you know, Grant, I think a lot of people don't get off on the right foot with Mike Keenan. <laughs> but uh, you ended up playing well in the 96 playoffs. You had just played so great that year. I remember actually seeing a few games in person. And I thought for sure we had the team to win that year. And then Maple Leafs forward Nick Kiprios – uh, kind of ends that. Uh, a lot of people think it was dirty. It was on purpose. I know you can't go back and change things, but do you, I, I mean, what are your thoughts on that injury? It, it, it sucked to have the injury, but uh, uh, you know, was it on purpose, Grant, or was it just a, something that happened in the game? Well, he fell on me on purpose, but he didn't mean to hurt me. I mean, that happens oh, probably 30, 40 times every playoff year. Sure. And I think that it's something you're used to. It's just, unfortunately, I had a leg stuck in a bad position and ended up wrecking a knee out of it. And unfortunately, we had a team, I think, that had a really good chance of winning the Stanley Cup that year. Did you know you were done for when it happened? I knew something was wrong. I wasn't sure whether I was done for or not. I mean, I'd never torn a ligament in a knee before and managed to tear two of them. So it was a new experience that I thought for a while maybe I could play, but it turned out that there wasn't much chance of it. Yeah, and then, of course, I'm sure you remember uh, John Casey letting the goal in against Detroit and the two things that Blues fans remember when they talk about not having a cup in over 50 years is your injury and John Casey letting that goal in. But like you said, stuff happens. Uh, it could have easily happened going the other way for the Blues that year. 
but it didn't. You ended up becoming one of the three winningest goalies in Blues history, along with Mike Leute and Curtis Joseph. And uh, you were traded uh, to Calgary after that uh, in 99. Um, as a boy growing up around Edmonton, we all know the Edmonton and Calgary uh, hatred for each other. It's such a big rivalry like the Blues in Chicago. Um, you went there. Uh, what was that like to play in Calgary after growing up around Edmonton? Uh, it was a little bit different, but at the same time, Brian Sutter was the coach there, and I have a lot of respect for Brian. So it was fun to finish my last year in playing for Brian. I mean, we see the game the same way. He's an intense guy, and it made it a lot of fun my last year. It's just, and Calgary's close to home. I mean, my mom was from Calgary, so I had a lot of friends and relatives around that area, so it was a good place to finish. Yeah, it definitely was a good place to finish there. And uh, you ended up uh, retiring later. You, you know, you'd always been the type of person to to mentor young goaltenders. You went on after that, and you were able to coach in the league for a while, weren't you, Grant? I did. I spent, I think, almost three years in Calgary helping out with the goalies and kind of got a taste for it and enjoyed it and then took a couple of years off and then was asked by Mike Barnett to help out in Phoenix. And I guess stayed down there for another five or six years and really enjoyed my time there. And then the last three years, I've just kind of got away from it again, and hopefully I'll get a chance to get back into the game soon. Yeah, that would be great. I, I could see that you would definitely lend some great experience in coaching to some of these young goaltenders because as you and I have talked before, you can have the talent, but it's a lot about the mental game. It's, it's When you become a good goalie, you can have the talent and you're, you're good, but when you reach the next step, it's that mental aspect of the game for that goaltender. It is. I mean, a lot of playing goal is mental. I'd say it's about 70-30, mental over physical. I mean, you've got talent to get to that point. It's what what do you do with that talent and how do you adjust as the game goes. So a lot of it's the mental side of the game. Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of a cat and mouse game with the other uh, forwards on the team. You show them something, you take it back, uh, they get used to you doing that, and they always try to one-up you. It, there's a lot more that goes on that people don't understand unless you've played the game when it comes to that cat-and-mouse game between a goaltender and a forward or a defenseman. There is. I mean, a lot of it's learning what forwards like to do. I mean, as you get older, you learn that a forward has a split second to make a decision where to shoot. So if you show him a space, that's the first thing he sees. Well, first instincts, shoot the puck there. Yep. So my strength was always my glove hand. I made sure they got a good look at my glove hand. <laughs> there was always some net there, so they got a chance to see it. Because they're thinking everything they have to do is within a second. Well, if, if you know that they're going there, or an eighty percent chance they're going to go there, it makes you look that much faster. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm sure you've seen a lot of guys' eyes get big for that split second, and then they let the putt go, and then they put their head down, thinking, "Oh, he did that on purpose." <laughs> that's that's half the fun of it. I mean, you learn to read the game and. Certain guys have certain tendencies, so once you once you learn some of the tendencies and such, you try and show them something that they want to see. Sure, sure. And after your coaching time ended, uh, but right before that, uh, you had actually been inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. What was that like for you, Grant? You've you've gotten the Stanley Cups, you've won the Vesna Trophy, you've shared the Jennings with Dominic Hasek. You've accomplished everything. Basically, a young hockey player in Alberta would want to accomplish. What was that like that day for you to have so many people say such great things about you, players you played with, guys you respected? It was just a complete day for you, wasn't it? 
It is. I mean, it's something, it's like the whipped cream on top of everything. I mean, one, you get, one, I got to play for 19 years. Two, I get to play with great guys and had success playing. And it's a team sport. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing there is. It's a team sport. You win as a team, you lose as a team. But to get into the Hall of Fame shows that your teammates and all your peers respected the part that you put into that team. Sure. And, uh, Later on, about a year later, you were inducted into the Alberta Sports Hall of Fame, and a lot of people probably listening will go, well, that's no big deal. Well, they don't understand hockey in Canada, and they don't understand hockey in Alberta if they say that, because that was a big deal for you, Grant. It is. I mean, having been born, raised, grown up in Alberta, that's always an awesome thing to do. This year, I get into the Alberta Hockey Hall of Fame. So, I mean, it's always nice when what you've accomplished over your career is recognized. I mean, it's your peers that are doing the recognizing, so that always makes it good. Sure. And a couple of years ago, I was uh, interviewing a good friend, Adam Scorgi. We were talking about Ice Guardians, and he was kind of giving me a little bit of a, of a, of I guess a little whisper in my ear about what might be happening with you. I got really excited and told him, "Hey, you got to get Grant on my show if you end up doing it." Uh, you guys ended up making uh, making Coco the documentary, but before we do that, I did want to get your. Uh, your opinion on what the topic of ice guardians was the enforcer in the game. I grew up with the fact that if you had the enforcer, people call them goons and I really don't like that. But if you had the enforcer there, a lot of stuff didn't happen. Guys didn't work you over with their stick. Guys didn't cross check the stars. Uh, You know, you talk to Brett Hall, Brett Hall says, if I didn't have Tony twist and Kelly chase, which I know, you know, both of them, I wouldn't be Brett Hall. And Wayne Gretzky says the same thing about Semenko and Mick Sorley. Heck, in fact, when Gretzky went to the Kings, he wasn't going to go unless unless uh, Mick Sorley went with him. What is your opinion on the enforcer in the game and, and how it's affected the game today? I think there's more cheap shots in today's game. Guys take liberties. Do you see the same thing that I see, Grant? I do. I mean, I think that's the one misnomer is that they were out there just to fight. What they did was they made the game safer for everybody else because there was a respect factor. I mean, you knew if you did something cheap that you had a price to pay. And I think what's happened is since they put the instigator penalty in, you see a lot more cheap shots because there's no price to pay. Mm -hmm. Guys make enough money now that a fine doesn't matter. So somebody making a decision wearing a suit is not a deterrent. Oh, yeah. Back in the the 80s, if you hit a guy, you know, you're making oh, 100000 The good players are making 300000 maybe a little bit less in the 80s. Uh, you know, they find you ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. That, that's a lot of money. They find a guy today twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, and he's making $8 million a year. That's chump change. Oh, no, and the other part is when the enforcers were around, the price you had to pay, you get a punch in the face. Sure. That's a bigger price to pay than the money. <laughs> I don't like that very much. And they're a little more respectful of that. So it made the game a lot safer. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. And, you know, I've got a lot of opinions on Gary Bettman in the league office, but I won't get into all those. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that if the league really looked at it, I know why they're trying to do it, Grant. They want to get those fans that the fighting just totally appalls them. They want to grow the fan base. And there are a lot of people out there that don't fully – they like the game of hockey, but they don't fully understand – why that enforcer's out there. And you see less and less enforcers on the team. 
Uh, we had Ryan Reeves here recently. Pittsburgh had, was getting sick and tired of Sidney Crosby being beat up. They get him. They end up trading him. He goes to uh, the Golden Knights. They make it to the cut to the Stanley Cup Finals. Uh, I've talked to Tony Twist about it, and Tony Twist would tell me stories. He says, he says, you know, Lance. He said I would go up to the other players, either on pre skate or walk by their bench, and say, if you touch number sixteen, and he said I'd point to myself and say. You're going to have to deal with me or somebody you don't want dealing with me is going to have to deal with me. And people can think that's terrible, but you know what? Brett Hall got taken uh, he got taken uh, a lot more seriously when people didn't want to touch him because they knew Tony Twist or Kelly Chase were going to come after him. Well, that's how you protect your best players in the game. And I think that's what's missing now is you watch playoff time. Teams take liberty with the best players. Sidney Crosby goes through Sidney Crosby goes through hell in the playoffs because there's nobody there to establish that there's a price to pay. The, the fines and all that don't matter. No, no, they don't. And you see guys getting the stick up, you know, and you see guys uh, hitting players with their heads down that recently just happened. Tom Wilson just hit a blues player, and it was Oscar Sundquist. And, no, he's a he's a fourth-line player, but he's an NHL player trying to make a living. And, you know, you're always taught in hockey when you're young, keep your head up, but you're also taught in hockey if a guy's got his head down and you do hit him, don't hit him up by the head. You know, those are the kind of hits I agree that we don't need in the NHL. And if it would have happened when you played Grant, uh, somebody would have paid for it. Oh, yeah. And if you look back in the 80s, yeah, the 80s were, was good, mean hockey. I mean, there's no question. You look at some of the Flames Oilers games, it was oh, yeah. vicious and it was mean. But at the same time, the good players, there was respect. There was no cheap shots to the good players. I totally agree. That's all part of having those guys around. You have to have them around to protect your good players. And, oh, by the way, if you have 18,000 seats, it's your good players that are putting the bodies in those seats. Pretty good asset to protect. Oh, I would say so. (laughs) And I also think one thing that would help, if you look back at pictures, and I, I played in the 80s when I was a kid, like I've told you before, I'm just seven years younger than you. And... The equipment for the forwards and defensemen, and even the goalies had changed until recently when they made the changes. But the shoulder pads, the elbow pads have gotten so big. So you got a guy that's 5'10", 5'11", and only 185 pounds. He can put a hurting on anybody just because of his equipment. Oh, no. Shoulder pads and elbow pads are a weapon now. And guys know that. So if you're going to catch somebody and you want to cheap shot them, you can get them with an elbow. You get them with a shoulder high. You know the pads are a weapon, and you know you're not going to get hurt. That's the big difference. I mean, a lot of the respect came from, if you took a run at a guy, there's a good chance you're going to hurt yourself back then. Sure. So as equip- as equipment's gotten better, you know you're not going to hurt yourself. Guys are a lot more careless when they go in to hit people. Yeah, I, I wish that would, the game would change a lot, but Grant, I, I don't think it's going to go back to the game that you and I loved. I think we'll just have to put up with it with the way it is, and hopefully they don't change it too much. As I've said, they've change some of the goalie uh, chest protection equipment. Uh, I don't know if you've looked into that, but do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, they're trying to shrink it. They're trying to round some of the edges, which I understand that. I, I don't have a problem with that. But at the same time, if they put some weight back in the equipment, goalies would shrink it themselves. I mean, they're always trying to tell goalies, well, you have to do this, you have to do that. If you put weight in it, the goalies are going to make that decision on their own. One, it's harder to move in it. So guess what? You wear it smaller. So it's, there's different ways of going about it, but at the same time, you got to make sure that the goalies are looked after too, because guys are shooting the puck better. Oh, sure they are. I remember back in the days, there were a few guys that could really get it up there 
But now there's a lot of guys in the league that are big and fast. Uh, you know, Ovechkin's got a quick shot. Uh, he's got one of the quickest shots I've seen since Brett Hall. And, you know, there's a lot of guys in this league that are shooting that puck 90-plus miles an hour up to 100 miles an hour. And back in the 80s, that there were a few guys that could do that. Al McGinnis could do that in the late 80s. But these guys are shooting the puck a lot a lot harder, a lot faster. And, uh, you know, like you said, the goalies make the adjustments. Um, let's get into the, the uh, documentary, uh, Making Coco by Adam Scorgi. Um, I know you've been approached in the past, you and I have talked before, about doing something like this. What changed your mind, Grant, about maybe moving forward with something like this? Uh, was it just time now in your life when you're settled down, you're doing your charity work, you're playing a lot of golf? Was it just uh, that time in your life that you thought, yeah, yeah, let's go ahead and do it? Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about it off and on for four or five years, but it's just it's a time in my life where I'm comfortable with where I'm at and happen to have the time to do it now. So they kind of convinced me, and having Donnie Metz as part of it, I've known Donnie since I was 17, 18 years old. So I, he's been around for the whole ride. And it's working with people that I was comfortable with. I think that was the biggest thing. I mean, Adam's been fabulous. Shane Fennessy's been fabulous. Donnie's fabulous. So it's people that I was comfortable with. Yeah, and I, I've not met Don, but I've I know people that have, know him, and they say he's he's a really super nice guy. And uh, you know, you got to have people around you like that. You had teammates like that in Edmonton, and uh, from knowing Adam and you know Don, and you've met Adam, it sounds like you had a good team of producers, directors, and uh, camera people all involved in the project. I did, and we sat down long before we ever started filming to see what direction it was going to go in, and. We were comfortable with going through everything. So I think that's what kind of put it all together is there's nothing that we wanted to hide. We're good with everything. So it made sense to sit down and go through it. Yeah, it definitely does. And I I was so excited, like I said, to hear about it. I uh, can't wait to see it. It sounds like a, a great, great documentary. I, I, I'm sure, have you seen Ice Guardians, the other one that Adam did? I've actually seen it four or five times because I really enjoyed it. I've watched it about 15 times. I've got all my kids to watch it. Everybody, I even, even though I can watch it on Netflix, Grant, I went ahead and bought a copy of it just to support Adam. So uh, when this comes out on DVD, and hopefully it will, uh, I'll definitely buy a copy of it. I know Adam is trying to get it on uh, eventually some streaming services, and I'm sure he'll do that good work and get it on there. Uh, would you say it was an overall positive uh, project going from city to city, going from Edmonton? Uh, I'm sure talking to people in St. Louis, uh, did you enjoy your time doing that traveling and talking to different people? I did. I actually had a lot of fun with it and brought back a lot of great memories. So actually right now we're just working on trying to find a date to bring it down to St. Louis. That would be great. Uh, I'd love to go there and and see it and uh, maybe catch up with you and Adam. I know Adam and I have talked about that before. I will tell you that uh, you are loved here in St. Louis as I've said, it still comes up every year when we talk about goaltending, uh, when I talk about anything on the podcast, and it's get mentioned, it gets mentioned every year. Yeah, we had the chance when Grant Fear was here, but of Kiprios, he just tore, my, he tore his knee up. And that John Casey goal, I don't think Blues fans will ever forget that, Grant, uh, but they appreciate everything you did while you were here. I'll make sure everyone sees the movie. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. You are such a humble person. I talk to a lot of people, uh, athletes, and not all of them are humble, humble, but you are truly a humble person, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you. 
It's been a pleasure on my side as well. That was NHL Hall of Famer and former Blues goaltender Grant Fuhr. I tell you what, guys, one of the nicest, most humble people that I've ever met, especially when it comes to an athlete. Just a great overall person, does some great work for kids' charities such as the Arthritis Society of Canada, Celebs for Kids, Lupus Canada, and many others. He focuses mainly on charities that have to do with children's ailments. That just goes to show you what kind of a person he is. He gives back a lot to the community, and uh, I wish him the best in his future endeavors. I'm sure that Making Coco is going to be just an excellent documentary with him and Adam Scorgi uh, behind it and Don behind it. It should be really great. If you want to find out more about it, you can go to at Making Coco on Twitter. You can also follow Grant directly at Grant Fuhr on Twitter and check it out. There's a great trailer you can watch on it, a very emotional trailer. If you'd like to follow one of the guys behind the story, Adam Scorgi, this is a guy that also brought you Ice Guardians. You can follow Adam at Adam Scorgi on Twitter. That's capital A D A M, capital S C O R E G. Look him up, follow him. I'm sure he's going to have some other great documentaries coming up. We all know how much we love Ice Guardians, and I'm sure we're going to love making Coco. So, guys, make sure to check it out. Till we drop the puck on another podcast, stay healthy. Stay happy, support charities in your community, and let's go blues. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Drop Podcast. If you want to download this episode, past episodes, or subscribe to The Drop, you can find us online at droppodcast.com, iTunes, and iHeartRadio. You can follow us on Instagram at the.drop.podcast. For more information about Lineup Media FM or the Drop Podcast, email us at info at lineupmediagroup.com or lanced at droppodcast.com. Until next time, let's go blues. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.